Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning and turn to Genesis 15. Our final uh, thoughts here in Genesis. So we have spent quite a bit of time, uh, last week being the last week where we sat in the beginning of Genesis, thinking through things. Last week, asking the question, who is Abraham's seed? And uh, we walked through, really, what it was, was Galatians 3, and thinking through the ideas in Galatians 3 as it related to the relationship between God's people and Abraham uh, that we would see within the scriptures, thinking through those things. Uh, today we get to get back into exposition. Uh, we get to start walking through the text again after sitting in Genesis 15 for uh, effectively five weeks with uh, three weeks in between where we were doing other things. So it's been a little while now, uh, but we get to finish the chapter. And this week we get to see the heart of God in a unique way toward men. We're going to see today God's patience as he gives Abram tangible proof of the promises that he's already made to him. Helping Abram have comfort in God's unseen assurances. We're going to see God's long-suffering, telling Abram that though he will give him that land that he has promised to him, yet there is a distinct reason why God explicitly states that that land would not be given to him for some 400 years. And we are going to see in this God's mercy. Mercy beyond that which any man should reasonably expect, beyond that which certainly any man deserves, but which is nevertheless abundant toward us every day. So we get to kind of, I prayed and talked about that oasis, and outside of these doors, there's not a whole lot of oasis today, but today we get to kind of sit under the, under the palm tree of God's goodness. And we get to reflect uh, in, the, in the shade of, of that goodness upon the Lord that we serve. He, he gets to lead us be, beside some still waters today. So let's dig into the text. And we're just going to read the whole last bit of Genesis right off the bat, verses 7 to 21. The Bible says this, And he, that would be the Lord, said unto him, uh, that would be Abram, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the birds he divided not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away, and when the sun was going down... A deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying unto thy seed, have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaims and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. So here we have the promise, fully fleshed out for Abram. Abram asks how it is that he can know that God will give him the land to inherit it. Now, this is interesting. God has already said, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward in Genesis 15, verse 1. 
God had made these promises and the Bible says Abram believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And yet Abram here is still asking the question, how can I know that I will inherit the land? And in response to this, God tells Abram to take a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old she-goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon and to divide everything except the birds in half and to lay the pieces one against another. It would be characteristic then for these animal pieces to be placed opposite one another and in doing so to create a sort of trough or a valley through which the two parts uh, of the animal, the blood of the two parts of the animal would flow, creating this trough. And then within the, the, the typical idea here as it would relate to this covenant, uh, it, within this custom, uh, the two parties that were making the covenant would each vow their part one to another. And then having done so, having, ma having made their vows, they would then walk through that blood together in a sort of blood oath of sorts, vowing to each other that they would uphold their end of the agreement and sealing that agreement by walking through that blood. So the Bible says that Abram does this thing. He divides the animals except for the birds and he puts them uh, one against another. And then he spends the rest of the day chasing away the various um, birds and such that would come to try to uh, pick the carcasses clean until the sun goes down. And the Bible says that at that time of the sun going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And in this deep sleep, he hears the words of God. We talked about this already, uh, it was many weeks ago now, that we talked about the nature of this deep sleep that fell on Abram and the significance of that as it related to the, uh, the nature of this covenant being an unconditional covenant. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But God promises to Abram that his descendants would remain strangers in the land and that they would remain strangers for the next 400 years. And that within that time, there would be a nation which would afflict them. Now, let's talk briefly about the timetable here. We find a timetable of 400 years being mentioned here where the nation would be strangers and would be afflicted. Uh, there is a little bit of controversy as to the nature of the timetable, um, depending on who you talk to and, and, and how they place this timeline. The implication here seems to be, as we read it just generally, uh, and as we compare Scripture to Scripture, well, we know that the nation that will afflict Israel and the nation out of which they would come where God would judge the nation and bring them out with a mighty hand. We know that that's Egypt, right? We know that that's the Exodus. We, we understand that to be, to be so. So the question is, is the 400 years that God is prophesying here 400 years in Egypt or is, the, is that 400 years uh, including some things other than Egypt? And as we filter it through what we know of Abraham's history, we know that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived in the land of Canaan, after which in the days of Joseph, Joseph brought Jacob and his family into Egypt. Now, if we trace that line through Moses, because we have that line well traced in the scriptures through Moses, we find that the nation entered Egypt in the generation of Jacob, Levi, and Kohath, Levi's son. With Genesis chapter 46, verse 11, telling us that Levi had three sons that entered with him. Recall that there were 70 persons that entered into Egypt in those days, and all 70 persons are named. And one of the people that is named is Kohath, who would eventually be the grandfather of Moses. Now, Kohath would give birth to Amram in Egypt, and then Amram, of course, would give birth to Moses. Thus, just as God said in verse 16, there would be a fourth generation coming out of the land of Egypt, uh, which would then enter into the land of Canaan 
well, sort of. I mean, they'd wander in the wilderness, right? But at least they'd, they'd, they'd leave uh, Egypt. Now, the Bible doesn't give us the age at which all of these generations were born. We know according to Exodus 6, 16, that Levi lived to be 137 years old. We know according to Exodus 6, verse 18, that Kohath lived to be 133 years old. And we know according to Exodus 7, verse 7, uh, excuse me, Exodus 6, verse 20, that Amram lived to be 137 years old. And then Moses, according to Exodus 7, verse 7, was 80 years old at the time of the Exodus. And there was obviously overlap between the generations even if there was no overlap, we would have a hard time squeezing it, uh, getting those generations to 400 years, right? But we know that there would certainly have been overlap, significant overlap between those generations. And this seems to imply then that the 400 years was not all 400 years in Egypt. It doesn't really make sense that all 400 of these years of promise would be in Egypt. Rather, we believe that there would be a 400-year sojourning. Now, recall, Abram lived in tents his entire life. Isaac lived in tents his entire life. Jacob lived in tents, maybe not when he was up with his mother's family, but as a, within the land, he lived in tents his entire life. They never were able to truly settle in the land and build houses in the land. They were sojourners in the land, and then they went and they were in Egypt. Now, we would presume that they did build houses in Egypt, except that they were not in their land, so they were still very much sojourning. So it is not inconsistent to say that they were sojourners for the entire 400 years, even if that entire 400 years was not spent in Egypt. It is also not inconsistent to say that they would be afflicted, even though we know that even when they were in Egypt, they were not afflicted for the entire time, but only after the understanding of Joseph passed out of that culture. And then they were afflicted in the final phase of that time in Egypt and, of course, brought out with a mighty hand. So we see these things, and it's not inconsistent that the nation would sojourn, starting with Abraham, through 400 years until effectively the end of the Exodus, coming out in that fourth generation from, out from this people under whom they were afflicted and given the land as a possession. And so we, we see this speculatively, but we really don't need to speculate on it because in the New Testament, we're given clarity. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 17, we've spent a lot of time in Galatians 3 over the past little while here, but in Galatians 3, verse 17, the Bible says this, Paul writing, he says, and this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. Last week, we talked about the fact that God made promises to Abram and that the promise that all the nations of the world would be blessed was a promise to the seed of Abram, which is, who is Jesus Christ. So Paul is referencing that covenant, that promise, that promise given of Christ and to Christ. And he says that the law, which came 430 years after that promise, cannot disannul it. So Paul gives us a timeline from the promise to Abram to Mount Sinai of 430 years. Now, following this promise, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 15, verse 17, that when the sun went down, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp passed between the pieces of the animals. And we noted this before. 
that this representation that God walked through the blood, but Abram did not, reveals that all that God was promising to Abram on that day and all that God was promising to his descendants on that day would come to pass unconditionally. God placed no conditions on Abram on that day. He did not say, as we see in the law, if you do this, I will do that. If you don't do this, then I will do something different. There was, there, there was no obligation placed on Abram on this day. Instead, Abram says, how can I know that these will come to pass? These promises which Abram had believed and they were counted unto him for righteousness. And so God put Abram to sleep and he himself walked through that blood. The lamp passed through those animals. God binding himself in these promises to Abram. That God would do these things for Abram, that God would do these things for his children, so that this day God gave them the land of Canaan for an inheritance and ratified it with his actions. Now, that's effectively it for our exposition today. But we have some things to talk about as it relates to what these actions of God tell us about his character. So we're going to sit in our application upon the very character of God. And the first thing I'd like us to consider this morning is the heart of God being a heart of patience. It is an interesting chapter of scripture, Genesis 15, is it not? As we stated back when we first considered it, Abram is perhaps in this time very discouraged and quite vulnerable. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't have a child. His heir is a servant in his own house, this Eliezer of Damascus. And he's trying to figure out how it is that he could have all of these promises of God. And we, we talked through that when we were there. And we talked through that day of vulnerability and, and how we can respond to that day of vulnerability. Abram questions God and, and God answers him in clarity. God says, nope, nope, one born in your house will not be your heir, but it will be someone from your own bowels. It will be someone of your own bloodline. And Abram believes God. But notice, even though we have already read that Abram believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness, he immediately says to him afterwards, how shall I know? Verse 8, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Now, this is entirely characteristic of the Abrahamic people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, that the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Going all the way back to Abram himself, the Jews have always been a people who have desired a tangible sign of spiritual promises. And while in Thomas's day, when Jesus stood before them, resurrected, Jesus softly rebuked Thomas for the requirement that Thomas made that he would not believe unless he put his hand into Jesus' side and saw the nail scars in his hands. On that day, Jesus said to Thomas in John chapter 20, verse 29, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And so we see that Jesus has always blessed those who having not seen have believed. And yet notice this. There's something very important about Jesus' statement here. Jesus softly rebukes Thomas on that day for the need for a physical manifestation, the need for a physical sign, the desire that he must see it with his eyes if he's going to believe it. And yet notice this, that though Jesus softly rebuked Thomas for this in that day, Jesus was still standing there, wasn't he? 
that though Jesus had rebuked Thomas for not being willing or able to believe without having seen, yet Jesus still appeared to Thomas in order that Thomas might see him. Jesus still allowed Thomas to put his hand into his side, didn't he? Jesus still allowed Thomas to see the nail scars on his hands and feet. And in this, going all the way back to Abram, where Abram was told these promises and Abram says, how can I know? And so God puts Abram to sleep and a lamp passes through those pieces of animals that were cut up and put, to, and, and, and put one against another. We see a heart of God that is truly patient with us, don't we? You know, as humans, we live in a physical world. And God knows how difficult it is for physical people to connect themselves with spiritual concepts. This morning in our time of prayer, I, I emphasized the fact that we can call God our Father. And the reason why we emphasize the idea of God being our Father is because uh, when we consider the idea of a Father, it conjures up within us a physical relationship that we can relate ourselves to. Now, not everyone under the sound of my voice today can relate yourselves positively to your earthly Father. But fathers, this is one of the reasons why you need to be a reflection of God. Because when a pastor stands behind the pulpit and he says things about your heavenly father, the idea when a pastor speaks of our heavenly father is that you are supposed to be able to relate yourself to the character of God through what you have experienced in the way your father has interacted with you. You ought to be able to relate yourself to patience, to long suffering, to mercy, to truth, to justice, to clarity, to, to provision, to a loving hand. Now, for those of you that have not experienced that in your own families, that is an unfortunate thing that the Spirit of God will work through with you, right? And help you get to the other side of in order that you can understand what it is that God is a true and a loving Father. But the whole essence of God calling Himself our Father is not because He is biologically connected to us. But because by connecting himself to that tangible relationship between father and child, we are able to understand God better. We are able to connect ourselves to spiritual truths better. God does that for us specifically because we are physical people being asked to relate ourselves to spiritual ideas. So he calls himself father. This is why God instituted baptism and the Lord's table. That though these actions have no inherent spiritual power or efficacy in our lives, there's no special second blessing or special forgiveness that comes through those ordinances, yet the tangible, physical, human actions that we take when we submit ourselves to believers' baptism or when we partake together as we do on the first Sunday of every month in the evening here at Legacy Baptist Church, when we partake together in, in, around the Lord's table, what we are doing is we are connecting spiritual concepts to our physical bodies. And humans need this. It's important for us to orient ourselves properly to the spiritual when we can see a physical outworking, a physical manifestation. Now it's also dangerous for us, right? Because humans have this tendency to, to um, take the physical and extend it well beyond its, its, its rightful place. But that's why it exists. These things exist as a reflection of God's understanding 
that it is not easy for people who live in physical bodies to connect themselves to purely spiritual concepts. And here in Genesis 15, though God had already given Abram these promises and Abram had even already believed these promises, God nevertheless patiently and lovingly takes Abram through the physical ritual of the covenant, modifying it to show that Abram had no obligation in that covenant, that it was an unconditional covenant, but nevertheless walking Abram through that ritual in order that Abram might understand with clarity the assurity of what God was promising on that day. And Christian, the same patient God is your God. It is not always easy to see with eyes of faith. It is not always easy to seamlessly appropriate spiritual promises into your physical life. As a matter of fact, I was talking to someone uh, several weeks ago and they were talking to me about the message I preached in James chapter 2 about faith. And uh, he was uh, very uh, kindly and and, and carefully uh, reminding me that a message such as that from that particular perspective um, might leave out some things as it relates to how it is that we relate ourselves to faith. That when, when uh, I, I presented faith in kind of this uh, um, uh, pocketed way where there's faith that, that works itself out in this area, but maybe you haven't found faith in that area. And, and, and he very graciously explained to me and reminded me that, you know, when we think about faith, faith is yet a process. And for perhaps a young Christian in here, who is struggling with their faith and then hears uh, me get up and say from a James chapter 2 perspective, if you're not bearing the fruit, then you don't have the faith. That that may not give an adequate connection to the idea that you are growing in your faith. And, and these are two different uh, perspectives. Uh, 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 not, 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 I don't believe, in disharmony. That from the one way we see ourselves as always growing in our faith and we have faith, but we haven't learned yet how to fully live out or rest in or um, uh, work out that faith. And then from a James chapter 2 perspective, uh, there's, there's a little bit of, a, of, I believe, a different perspective that's being presented there. Um, but the, the point is very well taken. And that point uh, dovetails beautifully with what we're, we're, we're talking about today. That we live in this, this, this world and we try to live out our faith and, and we don't always do well at living out our faith. And yes, from that James chapter 2 perspective, perhaps someone walked away saying, wow, I'm j- I just don't have it. Well, no, it doesn't mean you don't have faith. It just means you need to grow. And thank God that he is patient. That he gives us room and time to grow. See, because it's not easy to set aside what you can see, what you can feel, what you can taste, what you can hear, simply on the authority of a God that you cannot see. And God knows that. God understands that. Going all the way back to Abram, probably well before Abram, but as we consider this, going all the way back to Abram, here's Abraham, and he receives these promises of the Lord, and yet he's still struggling. So God patiently, lovingly, gives him a little bit more. And we could look here and sit here, stand here on this day, and we could say, Abraham shouldn't have needed that. And maybe he shouldn't have needed that on that day. Maybe his faith should have been plenty sufficient on that day to simply stand on what he knows God had told him and what God had promised, and and he did indeed believe it. We know that already from verse 6. But you know what? There's a lot of times where our faith probably should be stronger. And it isn't. And 
We don't say that by way of excuse. I don't say, well, my faith is not strong enough. Oh, well. No, it's not an excuse. But thank God that we have a God who is patient. I believe many of us can testify today of the fact that God has been very patient with us. And that in times when we have struggled to connect our faith to the unseen promises of God, God is certainly faithful to patiently direct us unto understanding. Now, the blessing of God is yet and always upon the man whom, having not seen, yet believes. My message to you this morning is not that you can demand of God signs and that God will, without fail, give you those signs. That's not how this works. The point instead is this. We talked um, last week when we talked about the nature of, of the Word of God, that God is not in the business of hiding Himself from us, that God speaks to us in clarity, that God has given this book to us, and it's very, very thick, not because He doesn't want us to know Him, not because He's trying to hide Himself from us, but quite, quite the opposite, because He is reaching out to us. He wants us to know Him. God is not in the business of hiding Himself from us. God is not in the business either of giving up on those simply because they are struggling. God is not standing in the heavens waiting to drop you at the first sign of doubt. God is not standing in the heavens with his hand on the lever of a trap door, just waiting for you to falter in your face so that he can yank it and you can just fall through into the abyss. That's not the God that we serve. No. Instead, God is a God who understands our struggles and he is a God of patience. And this truth does not exist in our lives in order to compel us to test God's patience. I do not preach this today so that you can say, well, good, I've been testing God's patience for a long time, and if he's that patient, then I guess I can just keep testing him a little longer. That's, that's not why I'm preaching this message today. It is not here so that you feel as though you can have an excuse to step intentionally outside of faith, to rebel against God. It doesn't work that way. You and I know it doesn't work that way. I'm not talking about the knowing rebel who hopes to manipulate God's favor and God's patience while doing what he wants, saying, well, since God is so patient, like the child, right, who knows right just when mom and dad are going to snap. And so they push mom and dad to that level and they push as far as they can. And then they realize when mom or dad says a certain thing, maybe it's their middle name, whatever it might be. Okay, now it's time to stop, right? I can push until I see this one sign. And once it hits that sign, then I know it's time to stop because I pushed mom and dad as far as I can without actually getting into trouble. Mom and dad, if you're that way, you should work on that. By the way, I'm not saying that that's the right way to parent. You should, um, you should have a consistency and a clarity of expectations by which your children cannot do that to you. But that being said, Many children can relate to that. Many parents can relate to that. That's not the idea here. The idea is not that, okay, God is really, really long-suffering, and so I'm just going to keep living in my rebellious selfishness, and as I see a little bit there and a little bit there of God's anger toward me, when it gets to the point where it looks like God is really going to lay down the hammer, then I'll repent. That, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm, that's not what I'm preaching today. I'm talking about the man or woman who wants what God wants. You want to believe God's promises, but you're struggling to do so, and you sit there with your Bible open on, on, in, in your morning devotions, or you, you get down on your knees in prayer, and the thing that passes through your mind is, I must not be, be good enough. I've pushed God too far. How could God possibly still be patient with me? He can't be. There's no way that he could 
still love me. There's no way that he could still put up with me. There's no way that he could still bless me. I am just, I try so hard, but I just fall so short. It's that person that I'm talking to today. It's the person that's struggling, not because you're rebelling, but you're struggling because you're very human. And it's you who needs to see a God who is patient with Abram in his day of vulnerability and in his day of struggle. It's you, you who is not trying to take advantage of God, but rather who is simply struggling and have added to this struggle the guilt that you're struggling so that you then feel stuck, not having the faith you wish you had and feeling that, like that struggle with faith is pushing God even further away from you through the guilt that you're feeling because you are struggling. And I get to stand here today and with a smile on my face tell you that that isn't true, Christian. Because the heart of God is a, God is a heart of patience. My encouragement to you today, on the day that you're struggling and you say, God, I don't understand how these things could be. I'm figuring it out and I'm not doing a good job and I'm confused and you may not have God put you into a deep sleep. He may not tell you to cut a bunch of animals in half and you may not see a light pass through the blood in a vision in your sleep. But you probably don't have to because you have it written here. The character of God is written down for you in the experiences of Abram and of Isaac and of Jacob so that you can know what they learned in their day that the heart of God is a heart of patience. I say this again not to give you an excuse to remain faithless. God's patience should never be an occasion for us to attempt to take advantage of our God. It doesn't work anyway. I say this to help God's people operate in the freedom of who God is. Being liberated from guilt, a guilt in which God has never desired his children to operate. And so be able to focus upon the faith which you are lacking in building it and growing it rather than what God must think of you because you lack the faith today. Trust God's patience. One day at a time, one step at a time. Be patient with yourself as you know God is patient with you. The just man falls seven times, but he rises again. So get up, confess your sin, and get moving for him. Point two. The heart of God is one of long-suffering and mercy. I want to point you to one more aspect of the text this morning. This is one of my favorite things in all of God's interactions with Abram. Those of you that have been around a while, you've heard me speak to this passage several times. And you've heard me speak to this point several times. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16, we read this. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them and shall afflict them 400 years. And also that nation whom they serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance, and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt, be, uh, thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. God tells Abram in these verses that he will give him the land, and Abram says, well, then why don't I have it? Why am I still dwelling in tents? He and his son and his son's son are going to go and they're going to dig a well and then there's going to be contention over that well and they're going to have to move. And then they're going and they're going to dig another well and there's going to be contention over that well and they're going to move again. And then finally they're going to play, find a place where they can settle for a little while only then to be moved all the way to Egypt 
and then to lose it all to the Canaanites anyway. And God told Abram that that was going to happen. God said, Abram, this land is yours. And Abram says, okay, show me a sign. And God says, well, here's the sign, but by the way, you're not going to have it for 400 years. That's a long time. It's longer than the United States has been around by a significant margin. That's a lot of generations. Why? Well, the reason that's given is right there at the end of verse 16. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. I love this phrase. It's wonderful. It's fascinating. The Exodus has long been used by wicked and ignorant men as proof positive that the character of the biblical God is evil. That God is genocidal and maniacal. That because when the nation of Israel entered the land of Canaan, God tells them to destroy everyone, men, women, and children, this makes God genocidal and bloodthirsty and evil to the core. And many a man and many a woman has been driven away from God because of this false perception of him. Now we know that perception is false. You say, well, yes, of course, we know that perception is false. We have Jesus. Yes, of course, we know that perception is false. Uh, we, we, we have a God who says he is love. Well, yeah, but we still have those verses in our Bible where God says, destroy the men, the women, and the children. How do we reconcile those? Well, this is how we reconcile those. This verse right here. What hindered God? Abram was chosen by God and blessed by God because of his faith and was going to be given great and precious promises, was given those things. What hindered God from giving it to Abram? Why didn't Abram get to inherit the land? Why didn't Abram get to settle in the land? Why didn't his son get to settle in the land? Why didn't his son's son get to settle in the land? Why didn't his son's 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 son get to settle in the land? This is the reason why. The reason why that Abram and his family lived in tents for three generations, lived in Egypt for those generations where they would be afflicted. Why was it that they would have to go and be afflicted and have their sons slain and be beaten and be torn? Why did Abram and his generations have to endure all of this, this faithful man and his family? Why would they have to go through all of that suffering before they could have the land? God did that. God allowed Abram to go through all of that, the sojourning and the suffering and the difficulty because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full, because there was still a light in Canaan, because the people of Canaan were not so far gone that they had expended the mercy of God on them. There was still a witness in Canaan. The nations of Canaan had not yet utterly rejected God. And as long as there was a glimmer, a glimmer of light, a glimmer of hope for repentance, God was not going to overthrow them. God was not going to judge them. God was not going to destroy them. God put his plan on hold for 400 years. That's a really long time. Because God's heart of long-suffering and mercy would not give way to judgment until there was nothing left but judgment. Until those four centuries had expired. And by the way, it would actually be longer than that because at that 430-year mark, that's Sinai, and then there's another 40 years of wandering, isn't there? Because of God's heart of long-suffering and mercy... 
It would be 400 years. God would ask Abram and his faithful posterity to wait 400 years for what God had promised them. Because those wicked men and women of Canaan, there was still some light left there. The iniquity of the Amorites had not yet completely filled the cup of God's wrath to the overflowing. And until that day, God was going to wait. Now, folks, that's not a genocidal, maniacal God. What God would wait would allow 400 years for a nation that's already headed toward wickedness, already headed toward paganism. The light in the land is already uh, quite low. It's already dim. And yet 400 years God would wait, leaving Abram, Isaac, and Jacob in that land, men like Melchizedek in that land, still preaching, still teaching, 400 years before God's mercy would give way to judgment, before God's long-suffering would finally be expired. That is not an evil God. That's a God that is far more long-suffering than I would be, than you would be. Make no mistake, God is just. His long-suffering may be great, but God's justice will always demand judgment upon the rebellious. Make no mistake. Maybe the rebels have 400 years. Maybe they have four years. Maybe they have four minutes. But God, that's God's business. That's not ours. But we know that God's long-suffering is great too. God has always shown himself long-suffering, always shown himself merciful. It was for this reason that God did not destroy the Amorites and allow Abram to simply have the land in Genesis 15. It's for this reason that God did not destroy Adam and Eve in the garden. We talked about that when we were in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Even though suffering Adam and Eve to live and to procreate meant that he would usher, that God would allow sin to prevail in the world, that we live in this sin-sick world where the innocent suffer and where his people struggle. God knew that that was going to be the result of allowing Adam and Eve to procreate rather than just destroying them on that day and starting over anew. But God was willing to suffer this rebellion against his will in order that he could bring about a plan so that Adam and Eve could be saved. And on the day that Adam took of that fruit and Adam and Eve fell to sin, they would have no chance unless God could then in history bring about Jesus Christ. And so he ordained that all of the suffering and all of the difficulties and all of the things that not only man would suffer, but that God would sit in heaven and he would see humanity shake their fist at him generation after generation. He would see humanity blaspheme him and curse his name for generation after generation. The God of all flesh, the God who owes us nothing, the God who does not need us, yet suffers mankind to hate him and to spurn him and to blaspheme him from generation to generation so that they might have the chance to be saved. So that he could bring about Jesus Christ in history so that there could be a redemption and undoing of what Adam had done in the garden. That is not a maniacal and evil God. That is a God of tremendous long-suffering and mercy. It is also for this reason that God has suffered the world to continue past Jesus Christ into this age that we call grace so that the church might be able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to all who will receive him. We as the church are now asked to do, very similar to Abram in his day, to endure the wickedness of man 
to struggle against weakness and illness of our own flesh, to wrestle against our own sinfulness, all of this in submission to the long-suffering of God. Why is it that people are getting sick? It's because of sin. Why is it that God's people are struggling with their own sinful choices because we live in the body of this flesh? Why is it that, that, that we have to endure as wicked men would seek to, to, to scorn us and to spurn us? And we're blessed in this country, but leave these shores and there's a lot more of that happening in the Christian world. Well, we do this in submission to the long suffering of God. He could take all of that away from us. He could have taken us home the moment we accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, but he didn't. He could have ended everything when Jesus came, but he didn't because in doing so, souls would be condemned and lost that might otherwise be found. You and I, we sigh under the weight of sin. We sigh under the weight of illness. We sigh under the weight of grief, but it is a grief that we endure in obedient hope, a grief which can nevertheless be born in joy because it is a grief which is founded upon mercy. Not mercy toward us, We've already received that mercy in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in heaven. It is a grief that is founded, excuse me, it is a hope that is founded upon the mercy of God toward the scores of men and women who have yet to find the truth. And so this morning we are reminded of the heart of our God. It's a heart of patience. It's a heart of long suffering. It's a heart of mercy. May we be compelled by this understanding not to tempt God. If you walk away from the sermon thinking, oh, okay, I can continue in my sin that grace may abound. Pastor Wickler said that God's long-suffering. You missed the point today. That wasn't my point today. We're not compelled to understanding God's mercy and God's grace so that we might take advantage of that patience or that long-suffering. But rather that we might Walk with him in his heart. That we might understand what God is doing so that we can align with God, what God is doing so that as we face our own days of suffering, as we face our own days of difficulty, as Abram did in his day, he did so in hope. He understood that there was a day of rest that was coming, but that God had a plan and that he was a part of that plan and that as a part of God's plan for him in God's long suffering, not for him, but for the land of Canaan, he had the privilege of living a different life. A life rooted in hope, rather a uh, hope of the unseen rather than the reality of what would be seen. And he lived in those tents and Jacob, uh, Isaac lived in those tents and Jacob lived in those tents by the will of God so that the people all around them might have time to repent. And we live in our bodies of flesh and we struggle against sin and we struggle against illness and we struggle against those who would even hate us and scorn us, belittle us, shame us, mock us. And we say, God, why? Why not just finish it today? God will finish it when the iniquity is full and when it's time for his long suffering and his mercy to overflow into wrath, God will finish it. But until that day, we have, a, we have the privilege to live a different life, to walk a different path, to be something different for God, to live in the tents of this world, to sojourn in a land that is not our own. But we do so for this time in obedience to God and submission to God 
alignment with his patience, his long-suffering, and his mercy. Don't lose sight of this, Christian. We are reminded that to be like Christ is to carry with us his heart, to assume his perspective, to align with his vision and his goals. Christian, if God is patient, if God is long-suffering, if God is mercy, so too should we. Be patient, long-suffering, merciful. Are you today? We sang a song just before the service. Abide with me. Asking the Lord that we would abide, that, that, that he would abide with us. Are you abiding in him? If God is patient with men who are struggling to get it, if God is patient with you who's trying and failing, are you patient? Or have you no time, no patience for those who just don't seem to get it, who just won't trust? Are we willing to live in our own times of difficulty in order that God might do what he intends to do in us, through us, and around us in his long-suffering and mercy? Or do we not have time for that? Do we not have the patience to wait on God's time? May God help us. We see the heart of God. We see that it is a heart of tremendous patience toward Abram. We see that it's a, a, a heart of long-suffering and mercy toward the land of Canaan. May we see the heart of God in our own lives. And may we carry that heart with us. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.